I think most people have been here since the start of the new year. So, as you probably know, we've been exploring a new theme for this year. And I've been framing it as living a life of mutual benefit, exploring the Noble Eightfold Path. And as I think most of you know, the Noble Eightfold Path really lies at the heart of everything that the Buddha taught over his 45-year teaching life. And it lays out a very holistic path of practice that includes every aspect of our lives, not just meditation. So if we want to experience the ease, the peace, the freedom that the Buddha talks about, it's not enough, it's not enough to just sit and meditate or read endless Dharma books and listen to talks and fantasize and theorize about what this freedom might be. We have to actually engage with these practices that the Buddha gave us and develop all, develop all eight of the path factors so that we can experience for ourselves that deep happiness that comes when we are living a life of mutual benefit. So I think as you know from previous weeks, wise view, right view, is the starting point of this path. Because wise view helps us to understand that all of us, all of the time, are engaged in a process of shaping our hearts and minds. In fact, shaping our whole lives with each thought, speech, action that we do. So even right now, that process is happening, whether you're aware of it or not. The choice, is, the choice that you made to come here tonight has an effect. The choices that you're making right now to listen or not listen has an effect. The choices you make about what you do when you go home has an effect, either for harm or for benefit. Now, it could be very subtle harm, very subtle benefit. But because this is happening all the time, we want to bring as much awareness as we can to all of it. And the English monk Ajahn Suchito sometimes talks about this process as one of what he calls crafting the heart. Crafting or shaping the heart. So he uses the analogy of how a craftsperson gets to know their material, whether it's wood or clay or metal or glass or paper in the same way we get to know our hearts and minds we sensitize ourselves to what's actually happening there we try to meet that with kindness with patience, with interest to really notice all the different intentions and motivations that emerge so that we can learn how to gently work with them and shape them shape the heart in ways that allow the natural strength and beauty and resilience to come forth. So this whole process of shaping, crafting the heart starts with wise view. And then that flows very naturally into the second path factor, which is wise thought or wise intention. So we've already had several sessions on wise view, and I think last week Marisha introduced wise thought or intention. So this evening I'd like to give a little bit more context about that second factor, 
because there's actually a lot to it and it might not be so apparent when we just hear the term right thought or right intention. And in fact, that term right thought can be pretty off-putting when we just hear it like that. It can sound like 1984, Orwell. The thought police are coming to get you. And that's partly why I generally prefer the translation wise intention rather than right thought. So, first, the connection between the first factor, wise view, and the second one, wise intention. As some of you know, Greg Kramer uses the analogy of a map to describe wise view. So it's like wise view gives us an overview of the journey. It's a diagrammatic picture of the terrain that we need to travel through to reach our goal. But it's wise intention that motivates us to actually take the journey. Without wise intention, the map would just stay on the wall as a nice decoration, but we wouldn't actually do anything with it. So wise intention motivates us to start the journey and then to continue it. So if you were here last week, I understood Marisha talked about the three different time frames of intention. And in the teachings, these are described as momentary intention, episodic intention, and overarching intention. So overarching intention is our deeper life's purpose. So it might include, for example, that underlying motivation to try to live our lives with more awareness, more clarity, (coughs) more compassion. So coming back to the analogy of the map, overarching intention motivates us to begin the journey. And then, with the underlying motivation, we might search for ways to support us to take the journey. So, for example, perhaps we find out about Auckland Insight and we decide we're going to come to the group regularly. So with the analogy of the map, that's like coming to a, that's like coming to a crossroads and then making the intention to choose the road that leads in the direction we want to go. So that's episodic intention. And as I'm sure you all know in your own experience, episodic intention needs to keep being refreshed by regularly reconnecting it with the underlying or overarching intention. Otherwise, it's very easy to get to Thursday evening and think, well, I've had a stressful week, I'm tired, maybe I'll just stay at home tonight and watch Netflix. And based on my own experience of that, when the next week comes along, it's like a little bit easier just to go down that same route. And then the third week, oh yeah, Netflix. And then the fourth week, we forget that we were even going to go. That's my experience at least. In fact, when Kim and I were sitting in the van, we were joking about how it would be quite nice just to have a little nap and (laughs) not show up for the group. But we're talking about right intention tonight, so that wouldn't have been a good look. So... Here we are. So it's very easy for that lack of motivation to take hold and we find ourselves going in a different direction than we originally intended. Now, for all of you here tonight, that at least tonight hasn't been a problem. (coughs) But even when we're here, we need to keep refreshing the momentary level of intention. 
Because again, whether we recognize it or not, in each moment, that mental factor of intention is operating. So right now, where is your attention? Sometimes it moves, right? It's somewhere else. And then we have to use momentary intention to bring it back. Oh, that's right. There's an intention to listen, to take things in, to stay present. Or not. The intention might be to just sit here and space out and think about what I need to do tomorrow. That's a different intention. Either way, intention is operating all the time. So we can understand then that all three of these levels of intention, momentary, episodic, overarching, when they're all in alignment with each other, they have incredible power and they develop that strong momentum that supports wise view. Wise view the understanding of what leads to happiness or away from it. So as I think most of you know, the Buddha identified three core afflictive energies that tend to pull us into harm. And these three are usually translated as greed, hatred, ignorance, sometimes compulsion, aversion, delusion. So when it comes to this path factor of wise intention, the Buddha defined this factor quite specifically in terms of thoughts or intentions that act as antidotes to those afflictive energies. So he defined wise intention as thoughts or intentions that are grounded in renunciation or non-greed. Thoughts or intentions that are grounded in kindness or non-ill will. And thoughts or intentions that are grounded in compassion or non-cruelty. So there's a famous passage in the discourses where the Buddha describes how shortly before he attained full liberation, he was sitting and just observing his mind, paying very careful attention to the thoughts, a little bit like what we were doing earlier. But he saw very clearly that certain types of thinking lead to harm for himself and for others, while other types of thinking lead to the opposite, to ease, to happiness, to freedom. And he saw that thoughts associated with sensual desire, with ill will, with cruelty, lead, quote, to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. That thought obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from nibbana. And then he described how on seeing how afflictive those thoughts were, that thought was, he said, it subsided. Whenever thinking imbued with harmfulness had arisen, I simply abandoned it, dispelled it, wiped it out of existence. Okay? <laughs> so just pay attention to every thought that arises. Notice if it's grounded in sensual desire, ill will, or cruelty. And if it is, wipe it out of existence. <laughs> so, we might understand the, that on an intellectual level. But for most people, it's pretty challenging to do. Especially when we're not in retreat-like conditions, when we're in the middle of our ordinary lives. Even just seeing our mental activity in the first place can be quite challenging, let alone working out 
the quality of the thoughts, whether they're harmful or not. So for me, it was helpful to hear that this path factor is somehow, sometimes also translated as wise or right resolve. Because that term resolve, to my ears at least, gives a sense of how much effort it actually takes to keep training our thoughts in the right direction. Because when right thought is translated as right intention, in English, the word intention, it can sound a bit wishy-washy. Well, I didn't have the intention to hurt you. Or the path to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> you know, it's a bit sort of lackluster somehow. But in actual practice, I think we all know that just having a good intention is not generally going to change our way of thinking. Um, it takes real strength and determination so that's why I prefer, in some cases, right resolve or wise resolve. It conveys how much effort we want to put in. So we need to be resolute when we resolve to orient our thoughts away from sense, desire, ill will and cruelty and towards renunciation, kindness and compassion. And again, even though we might understand the value of doing this, I don't know if you had this experience, how often we find ourselves caught up in habitual reactions that take us in the opposite direction. So certainly there's been times in my life where something painful has happened, I've done something stupid, harmful, and I was like, oh, God, I can't believe I did that again. I will never do that or say that again. And sometimes minutes later, bloop, something comes out of my mouth. It's like, what? Said that wasn't going to happen. This is so common, and the Buddha understood it from having examined his own mind. So there's also a famous quote from that same discourse. Whatever a practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Whatever we frequently think and ponder upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind. And he goes on to say, if we keep thinking thoughts of sense desire, of ill will, of cruelty, then we're abandoning renunciation, kindness, compassion, and strengthening the afflictive states. And this is because the Buddha understood what modern Neuroscience is only just recognizing, relatively recently, neuroplasticity. Repeatedly thinking in certain ways literally shapes our minds. As I say, neurons that fire together, wire together. So it's that neuroplasticity that allows us to craft, to shape our hearts and minds. And again, this is happening moment to moment. Every thought, every intention, every motivation moves through our minds and creates a track. And we might tell ourselves, well, thoughts are just fleeting, they're insubstantial, they're insignificant. But cumulatively, they strengthen certain habit patterns, for better or for worse. And a few years ago I read how they'd done autopsies on the brains of people who had severe obsessive-compulsive disorder, and they could see physical grooves 
in the cell, you know, in the brain, the people had sculpted their own brains by the strength of those repetitive patterns in the mind. Now that's an extreme example, but we're all doing similar things within our own minds. Unfortunately, we can change those tracks. We can change, strengthen the beneficial pathways and withdraw energy from the unbeneficial pathways so that we're less likely to go down that track in the future. So just to bring it into the context of our own lives, I'm guessing most of you can have a, can think back to a time perhaps before you started meditating, before you started learning about the Dharma, and perhaps remember some of the ways you used to think back then that maybe you don't think so much now. So for example, a few years ago I found a journal from when I was in my 20s and I just flicked it open and read a couple of pages and it was like, who is that person? (laughs) And it was quite painful actually to see just how the afflictive thoughts were just and self-referencing kind of... And I realized I haven't had thoughts like that for however many years. And maybe I'll never have thoughts like that again. I mean, it feels like that at this point. You know, those very intense, negative, self-loathing kind of thoughts. So do any of you have a sense of that in your own lives? If you think back, maybe when you were 13 or 20 or... Certain thought patterns wouldn't just wouldn't happen in the same way. Does that feel true? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe under extreme circumstances, but for the most part, there are whole pathways that probably don't exist so easily. They're overgrown now with good stuff. <laughs> so that's the general sense of how wise intention works. And I'd like to get just a little bit more specific about the three aspects of it. So remembering that it involves cultivating thoughts that counter greed, ill will, and cruelty. So in their place, the intention or resolve towards renunciation, towards goodwill or metta, and towards non-harming or compassion. So I'm not going to try and go into all three of these in detail tonight. I'm going to focus on just the first one, which is right, which is renunciation, or nekama, to use the Pali word. And always, when I talk about this, have to acknowledge that in English, the word renunciation doesn't have great connotations. How many of you think, oh great, we hear about renunciation now? <laughs> Anybody? Or was there a slight sense of, oh, okay, just sort of pulling back? Not surprising, because in English this word, here's some synonyms from the dictionary. Abandoning, repudiating, sacrificing, giving up, resignation, abdication, surrender, foregoing, abstention from, refraining from. Going without, doing without, giving up, eschewal of, and rejection. Great. 
that is not at all what the Buddha was pointing to. In the context of his teachings, renunciation has a pretty different flavor. And when I was researching for these talks years ago, almost every time renunciation is mentioned in the discourses, it's described as the bliss of renunciation. In English, those two words just don't go together. So we have to do a pretty serious reframe to understand what he's pointing to here. So just as a way in, uh, Joseph Goldstein describes renunciation as non-addiction, which perhaps at least points to the freedom that we can experience when we're not dependent on external circumstances for pleasure, for happiness. So again, just to get a sense of that in your own experience, can you think of a time when you really wanted something? A thing, an object, a substance, maybe a person, an experience? Just see if you can bring to mind a memory of really wanting something. might be a while back. And you might remember back then, how did that wanting feel? Or when you contact it again now, how does it feel? What effect does it have on the body, the heart, the mind? Anybody like to offer a few words? Leaning in. Leaning in, yeah. So being off balance in some way. Yeah, off center. Yeah. I can feel my teeth clenching. Your teeth clenching. I want to go to Spirit's Bay, take the drive to Spirit's Bay. Yeah. The other three people in the car didn't. It's a little bit of ages. Yeah, that's a great physical example in your face just the clenching of the teeth and the tightening of the jaw yeah great yeah I yeah I want yeah I'm doing that it's just a reflex that gripping anybody else a bit of clenching in my abdomen yeah clenching in the abdomen and you you also did the jaw thing yeah yeah Yeah, it's probably a whole lot of clenching. Yeah, all the way down from (laughs) the jaw to the lower belly, maybe even the sphincter. (laughs) Okay, so I think that's probably common for most people. In the service of balance, let's see if we can find an opposite experience. An experience of what we could call non-addiction or renunciation or relinquishment. Just to see if you can find a time when you didn't automatically go after something that you generally might have wanted. Or perhaps something that you craved years ago and now have no interest in it. Doesn't have much pull. Just seeing if you can find an experience of contentment. Ease. Letting go. Not wanting, but also not not wanting. Okay, anyone have a sense of how that affects the body and the heart-mind? Maybe a bit more subtle. 
Expansive. Expansive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, spacious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, wide and quite open. Wide and open, yeah. Yeah. And the opposite um, to opposite of clinching. Yes. Yeah. The opposite of clinching. Anybody else? It's like a softness and almost like a fluidity. Yeah, softness and fluidity. So generally that experience is much more pleasant, right? Than the experience of wanting. Does that feel true? So just to recognize that sense of relief, of ease, of spaciousness, maybe it's not bliss, but it's in the direction of something much more pleasant than the tightening, the narrowing, the contracting, when we're caught in wanting. And as we develop the taste for that, we understand that renunciation is not some kind of self-punishment for being greedy. It's not a puritanical abstinence, but it's a source of well-being in and of itself. And it supports all kinds of other beneficial mind states, such as contentment, satisfaction, generosity, ease, spaciousness, equanimity. So this quality of renunciation, it, it begins with looking at our relationship to external things, material things or situations where we tend to get caught up in entanglement, clinging and craving. But as this practice deepens, it becomes more about bringing awareness to our what we could call our inner addictions, our mental clinging to views, to opinions, to beliefs of all kinds. So our self-views, our self-perceptions, our identities. So wise intention and wise view work together to show us where do we get caught in mental habit patterns that are not so helpful and instead help to release them. So those of you who were here a few weeks ago, I, we were experimenting with this when I invited you into relational practice to explore together in terms of Dharma. What does the concept of freedom mean to you in your own practice? And based on the group discussion that we had afterwards, it was pretty clear that the perspective that we hold, the view, powerfully shapes the intention of where and how and why we practice and that shapes the results, the benefits that we get. So just as an encouragement to think more broadly about what renunciation is here, I'd like to share a relatively long quote from Pema Chodron. She says, Renunciation does not have to be regarded as negative. I was taught that it has to do with letting go of holding back. What one is renouncing is closing down and shutting off from life. You could say that renunciation is the same thing as opening to the teachings of the present moment. Renunciation is realizing that our nostalgia, the wanting to stay in a protected, limited, petty world, is insane. Once you begin to get the feeling of how big the world is, and how vast our potential 
or experiencing life is, then you really begin to understand renunciation. When we sit in meditation, we feel our breath as it goes out. And we have some sense of willingness just to be open in the present moment. Then our minds wander off into all kinds of stories and fabrications, manufactured realities. And we just say to ourselves, it's thinking. We say that with a lot of gentleness and a lot of precision. Every time we are willing to let the storyline go, and every time we let go at the end of the out-breath, that is fundamental renunciation. Learning how to let go of holding on and holding back. So she goes on to illustrate this with an analogy. The river flows rapidly down the mountain, and then all of a sudden it gets blocked with big boulders and a lot of trees. The water can't go any further, even though it has tremendous force and forward energy. It just gets blocked. That's what happens with us, too. We get blocked. Letting go at the end of the outbreath, letting the thoughts go, is like moving one of those boulders away so that the water can keep flowing, so that our energy and our life force can keep evolving and going forward. We don't, out of fear of the unknown, have to put up these blocks, these dams, that basically say no to life and no to feeling life. So renunciation is seeing clearly how we hold back, how we pull away, how we shut down, how we close off, and then learning how to open. And that opening is what helps us to frame all of this, to live all of this in terms of mutual benefit. Okay, so I think that's probably plenty of words. Thank you for your attention. I'd like to take some time now just to hear any reflections or questions, comments from any of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.